So tonight, we are up to number 325, and we have a couple of here about meditation. Number 325, I, Walter, was having difficulty receiving the results in meditation that I wanted. I think it's interesting, he uses the word receiving the results. The normal way to write that would have been achieving the results I wanted in meditation. You know, Swamiji really reviews every word. So it's an interesting, it's interesting to contemplate just that simple statement there. Isn't it amazing how so much teaching can be just in one word? I, I didn't even notice that until I read it out loud right now, because the word receiving and achieving are spelled almost the same. So I just, I, in my head, I, I saw it achieving every time. Okay, I, I was having difficulty, Swami writes, receiving the results in meditation that I wanted. Um, the whole path is receptivity. One evening, I found the master alone and said to him, Sir, I keep trying and trying, but I'm not going deep. Am I not trying hard enough? The master shook his head. You are trying too hard, he said. You are using too much willpower. It becomes nervous. Just be natural. As long as you try hard, as long as you try hard to meditate, you will not succeed. Just as if you try hard to fall asleep, you won't be able to do it. Willpower should be applied gradually. Otherwise, it can be detrimental. That's why it is good in the beginning to emphasize relaxation. Well, there's a lot of instruction in there. Also, when he says willpower should be applied gradually, he goes on to say that's why it's good in the beginning to emphasize relaxation. So he's talking both at the beginning of your practice as a devotee and also conceivably as your practice of each meditation. Okay, so we start with um, him saying... I was not receiving the results in meditation that I wanted. It, it's such a difficult... Um, the reason the path of self-realization is so tricky is that it just can't be redu- reduced to dogmas that apply to everyone. And it can't be reduced to dogmas that apply to every circumstance because it just completely depends on where you are in relation to it. So it's also interesting how we tend to remember those things well, that are particularly relevant to us, but sometimes we consistently remember those things that, are, that cooperate with our own misunderstandings, because uh, they, they just stay in our mind. It, it was, it's not really um, instructive in a universal way, but I remember a period of time at Ananda community when, you know, our community, we, we in the very early years, we, we, we were sort of more like one entity. Now there's many different vortices in many different Ananda communities, but as Swamiji said, at a certain point from the opposite side, he, he, it was partly when he went on to work more in Europe than just work in California, he said there was a time at Ananda village when he could redirect the energy of the whole community just by, by doing so. Let's do this, let's do that. But then there came a time when there were just too many vortices of energy and it just wasn't possible. 
So in one of those times when we were still really a unified group, a kind of sense of collective stress had really developed in the community. And I remember we were having a community meeting about it. I don't think Swami was present. It was just us for some reason. And I remember asking the community, how many people here, just right off the top of your head, can quote three things about the arduous effort to be on the spiritual path? You know, and almost everybody raised their hands because we all had one. And the greater the willpower, the greater the flow of energy. You know, just make today's meditation deeper. Every day's meditation should be deeper than the meditation before. Um, The spiritual path is martyrdom. You know, they were just like we all had a whole long list of those. And then I said, how many can quote three things that say that the path is effortless joy? You know, it was all, we sort of slumped over and looked at our shoes because we couldn't. We had just really fallen into that side of it. But where there's as many, just as many words from Master about the blissful nature of the spiritual path, we tend to orient toward sort of where we're going. One of the, one of the common delusions of delusion <laughs> is that we think that if it's not working, it's because we're not trying hard enough to do what we're already doing. I remember a friend of mine once was just lamenting the fact that, you know, it just wasn't working for her and she just needed to be more disciplined. <clears throat> that reminded me actually of myself. And with this was, I think, the first summer. I think it was 19, 1971 in the summer. And I remember saying to Swamiji that I, I really needed to improve my powers of analysis. And in, in my mind, he was sitting in a chair and I was sitting in a chair opposite him. In my mind, he rose from his chair and reached out to me. But I actually don't think he did. But I felt like he went like that, like to grab me. But I think he was sitting perfectly still, but that's what his energy said. And he just said, no, just like that, no. He said, and then he said more like this, you need to increase your devotion, just like that. And so, I, of course, I never forgot him saying it, but I didn't have any idea what he meant. Because my way of approaching life was to analyze things. And so if life wasn't working the way I wanted it, that obviously meant that I wasn't trying hard enough to do what I do. And for him to just completely turn me over to here, it was really a long time before I was able to receive that instruction. It was a little bit like the first time, and this was also, this was even in the summer of 1970, when I came to visit before I moved, and Benai, who was one of the founding members of Anandan, is still there, was talking to Satya in the registration office of the what is now the seclusion retreat. And at that time, things were a little haphazard. And there, there had been a, an abandoned bread truck, like a big van with a back in it. And an abandoned bread truck is actually a waterproof room, which in our state of development was a a really a big object to have a ready-made waterproof room and Benai who who eventually has become a gemologist and an astrologer who understands stones and still has this this business with jewelry even then in 1970 had an interest in jewelry and he had started a business where you know when I remember when I went to India and they served us tea in these little hollowed-out clay cups. In lieu of paper cups, they gave us hollowed-out clay cups. Now, from 
my way of thinking, a hollowed-out clay cup is a more expensive item than a paper cup. And, but I was so surprised that as soon as we used them, they sort of just dropped them on the ground and just, I realized, broke them back into the ground because they were just made out of the earth that somebody would just scoop up like that and form into this cup. So it was much cheaper than a paper cup that had to be manufactured somewhere and imported in. So I understood when I saw that, because in the first years of Ananda, you know, anything that you could make without, anything you could do without a cash in involvement was much more desirable than anything that cost money, because we just didn't have money. So very cleverly, Benai uh, got pieces of, there's all that manzanita up at the old uh, meditation retreat, the beautiful manzanita. So he would cut little bits of manzanita and then he would route, route them out. He would pick flowers and press them and dry them. And then he had to buy rosin and then he'd, he'd embed the dried flowers in rosin and set them in the wood. It was actually very attractive. He was very creative and very attractive and he made all kinds of jewelry kind of things, you know, key rings and earrings and necklaces and it was quite a nice business. And he'd set the workshop up in the back of the old abandoned truck. Somebody else, because we weren't very centralized, somebody else had thought the abandoned truck was an eyesore and managed to, to use a tractor to haul it off the property and push it off the edge of a cliff or something like that. Not knowing that Benai's fledgling enterprise was in the back of the truck. So I, all of this I gathered from the conversation between Benai and Satya. But Benai's whole discussion, because this was his mindset, was that he'd felt guided by mother to make the business. And it seemed to be going well. She seemed to approve it. But now mother had taken the business and just pushed it off a cliff. And so he wasn't really sure what mother wanted. I thought, this guy's pretty old to just be doing what his mother wants him to do. <laughs> And I also thought she wasn't a mother really worth listening to if she was so whimsical about her instructions. And I didn't know how else was I going to interpret it. What was I going to do? And uh, then later I found out that he was talking about divine mother, which actually did not make it any better. It just made it even more strange. And then at some point, not too long after that, I, I presented some, in my an analytical way, I presented to Swami some big dilemma I was dealing with. And he just said to me so sweetly, again, I had no idea what he meant, but I remembered it. He said, just offer it to Divine Mother. And I thought, yeah, and, and, so that's like, that sounds good, but what am I actually supposed to do? And he, there was no other advice, so I just had to live with that. Um, and I did, and I stayed with it. And about seven years later, someone came to me with some very complicated intellectual issue, and I said, just give it to Divine Mother. And I thought, where did that come from? I mean, it wasn't like the first time I'd said it, but it was like, my goodness, look how much the consciousness can change. From hearing that is just absolutely incomprehensible to it being the spontaneous response that I actually think will help somebody else. I mean, i am so become so persuaded of it, that it's not only the advice I follow, it's the advice I give. You know, so we all sort of run these cycles a lot. And we have to be really attentive to the fact that, that the answer is often a moving target. I remember myself, I tended to be over-anxious and uh, 
I'd get wound up and do too much. And I remember Swamiji really saying to me uh, very clearly, you don't always accomplish more good by simply doing more. And, and as I gradually understood that, what I meant, what he was telling me, was when you get all frantic about what you're doing, you're not really doing more good. You have to stay centered, you have to stay calm, just to be frantically moving forward. You need to get your magnetism in order before you go, which is the rule I've followed ever since. When I know my magnetism is off, I know I'm not going to accomplish anything anyway, so I need to say no until I can get it back. Um, but then to someone else, he basically, when uh, one of her friends was saying to Swami that this woman works all the time, Swami, you should tell her to take a day off. Then Swami reprimanded the one who made the suggestion and said, I know what is best for her. And as he explained later, he said, whenever she stops working, she falls into a mood. He said it's much better that she just work all the time because it just depends on what our flow of energy is. So coming back to what Master's written here, you know, Swami's problem was not lack of willpower. His problem was not lack of determination, but he then became the illustration for a universal principle. The, deep, the difficulty receiving the results of meditation was partly the fact that Swami thought that the difficulty in achieving the results of meditation rather than receiving. Because if we're too tense, we're not able to receive. And in meditation, we're not creating this out of our own minds. When I would teach the beginning meditation classes, when, when I used to teach them, um, I, I would very early on explain to people the kind of meditation that we teach, that, that these masters teach for us. Because even, well, even then, but especially now, the word meditation is used in lots of different ways. And our meditation, meditation for self-realization, is a relationship to a greater reality. And it is an attunement to a reality that transcends what we normally think of reality and that is actually there. And the word relationship is the key. Whether we make that personalized to Divine Mother, to God, to Guru, to God, if those are all the words that we can use, the word greater reality is a good beginning and then you can give that reality characteristics by using images that the heart already understands. That's what Divine Mother really is. It's a greater reality that exists but is hard to describe because it transcends our language. But when we call it Mother, then we begin to understand because we understand what mother means. And we can even understand what ideal mother would mean or ideal father or perfect friend or any of those things. It's not that there is really a female person um, who is bustling about the heavenly kitchen making heavenly father a cup of tea. It's rather that feminine reality can... Uh, the, the feminine aspect of reality can be expanded to infinity and, and has a, a, a vibration that we can recognize. Now, let me come back to that. Oh, yes. And I, I, I always would try to explain to people that uh, 
a lot of times people will teach you what they call meditation, which is really a kind of guided visualization, where you use your imagination to project yourself into a setting that, that may have some vibratory reality, but in and of itself is an imaginary setting. You imagine that you're on the beach and that you meet a unicorn and you get on the back of the unicorn and you ride happily through the waves. And that can relax your mind a lot. I was joking with a friend of mine recently that on, I would say more than one occasion, but really only a couple of times, I have allowed my mind to go into a long fantasy about winning the lottery. Not that I even buy, ever buy a ticket. But if I had a hundred million dollars, how would I spend it? And I review Ananda worldwide and I pay off all the debts that every Ananda community has and I buy everybody's community outright and, uh, you know, just like I do all this. And I have, on one occasion especially, gone so far into that fantasy that for a week or so I felt very relaxed and uplifted. (laughs) And I had to stop and ask myself why. And it was because in my imagination I'd paid off everybody's debts and we were all just you know, doing so well now without any financial pressure. And then I had to remind myself that I just made that up. That was just pure subjective lunatic fantasy. So it's not that we can't work with the mind and make that happen, but riding on the unicorn in the waves, if it's left on the level of just, I go off into this imaginary daydream and then I feel relaxed because I have broken the cycle of stress, that's not the same as actually attuning ourselves and and expanding our relationship with the greater reality. I mean, one is is fantasy, really, and, and, you know, with an element of being relaxed is a more appropriate state than being tense, but still, it's, it's relaxation from fantasy. Whereas actual meditative attunement to a higher reality, that's not a fantasy. That's actually expanding your self-definition to a greater truth that is not subconscious, it's superconscious. And um, let, let's see, no, let me just stay with that. So that, that, is, that comes to the element of receiving. We don't make it happen. We don't, and see, this is where we get confused when we get these heavy willpower ideas about how to achieve deeper states of meditation, is that we're trying to, we're trying to externally make ourselves into something. Instead of, and this is, gets very subtle, instead of letting go of the wrong self-definitions that keep us from perceiving what we already are. That's why Master says, at the beginning, it's better to emphasize relaxation. It, it came, it was illustrated, and this is not meditation, this is about death. And I can't really speak to this with absolute authority, just as you'll see from the nature of what I'm about to say. But when um, our friend Tushti was in the last weeks of her life, um, those of you who have watched more online programs have heard me talk about it. It was actually my friends reminded me it's almost three years ago. She died in the in the February March. In this March, it'll be three years. Time just sails by. And when she she became ill with pancreatic cancer, 
and from being very healthy was suddenly quite sick and then within six months had left the world and for the last not quite month of her life I lived in the house where she was dying with her husband and a few other friends so I was very intimate with uh, um, with the process and she was a very conscientious person extremely conscientious in the way she approached life and approached every she was very accomplished and she was accomplished because she was very conscientious and she was going through these stages of passing from this world and since I I'm not I can't go into super consciousness at will I couldn't actually be in her consciousness I had to try to deduce from words that she said and and some intuition but a number of times before she actually left her body she went very far away from her body and very far into the other worlds and that all of us could see you know there would be six or seven people at different times meditating with her in her heartbeat and her breath and I, I've seen the death process before and other the hospice nurse and others who know it even better than much better than I also said you know she went into the places where most people go and don't come back but repeatedly like five times or six times she would just come back just sort of suddenly come back and everybody was like what's holding you we, we went through many things but at one point she she said she spoke of the of the of master's teachings to die consciously and it was uh, and she essentially explained that she kept coming back because she wanted to die consciously and of course I I was in no position to tell her what that actually meant although she was sort of looking to me for some kind of guidance in this matter and and I I worked from a different angle because she had talked about how extremely aware she was of God's presence all the time and I said well you know you you say that you're aware of God's presence all the time so I'm not really sure what dying consciously would be <laughs> except to die in the awareness of God's presence now there may be a, a well be a nuance there I don't understand and I but she she sort of thought about it for a minute and I half jokingly said I think that's an instruction that's meant for us I don't think it's meant for you anymore I think you've you gone to the other side of it but it was extremely poignant because somehow whatever I said struck something in her heart and she said I think I've always tried too hard she said just like that I've always tried too hard and she didn't pass away immediately but we basically moved into the next phase of whatever it was that she was trying to work through but I've, I can I can so vividly see the expression in her eyes and the realization that's coming I mean she's literally on her deathbed she hasn't gotten up from her bed in quite some time you know I think I've always tried too hard we get ideas in her head and our head about what it's supposed to be and then we continually try to manifest that idea rather than actually trying to receive what is coming to us and that's why master talks about it's not that you're not trying hard enough you're trying too hard you have an idea of what this is supposed to be and you just keep trying to achieve it and he uses the phrase 
just be natural. It's a very, I mean, like we think natural is the last thing I want to be because we think of natural as being all of our limitations. But I'll I'll put it this way. This is the way at a certain point I began to realize uh, an internal mistake that I was seriously making that I've seen others make. Self-realization is not perfecting the self that we are normally identified with. That's how we think about it. I have to be perfect in my practices. I have to be perfect in my thoughts. I have to try hard enough. People are always asking, well, how do you know when you've done your best? You know, I said, well, just do your best and don't worry about it. How do I know if I've actually done my best? We think we have to perfect the me that I call me. But when I have actually received deep meditation or true um, upliftment, it's not because I've gotten everything finally in order. It's because for the moment I've forgotten that I exist. And I'm often quite surprised to come back and realize that I'm just as much of a mess as I ever was. I just wasn't concentrating it on, on it anymore. Which comes to one of Asha's completely false but wonderfully useful principles, which is that we never actually get any better. We just stop caring. It just ceases to be important that we have our life together in any way at all. And we recognize that God doesn't care either. Not in the way we think he does. He's not weighing and measuring us. He just wants to know that we have a pure heart and that we love. And that even if we're a mess, that we love. So I'm, uh, I think it was not very long ago in this, we were talking about James Collar, whom Master said, I saw him on the beach and he was surrounded by light and Divine Mother told me that he would be free in this lifetime. And Master even said, I don't know how, but Divine Mother told me, so it must be true. And that he was, he was a, a chaotic person. He had what Master called commotion karma, which is a phrase that we've all loved because there are certain beloved people in our own community who have commotion karma. There was a man, I won't bother to mention his name, but he, was, he had commotion karma. And he, this was years ago, and he, it, that time he lived here, he hasn't lived here for decades. But he was just a, a big person who, who never seemed to quite do it as it ought to be done. And he was in the house that I was living in and I had this little, this shelf that was made out of glass and brass and it had some little delicate things on it. And there were people in the house and he just made some movement and knocked the whole thing over and everything fell to the ground. Fortunately, nothing broke, but it all like that. And in exasperation, I said, to, you know, I said his name, so-and-so, You've just got to watch what you're doing. He said, watch what I'm doing. I didn't even know it was there. <laughs> I thought, oh, Lord, there's really no answer to this. You know, I didn't even know it was there. But God doesn't really care. You know, I cared, but he didn't care. God doesn't care. And James had that kind of commotion crime. Wherever he was, something just became a mess. But he had a pure heart, apparently, and God said he was going to be realized. And that's when... I, I, and actually, the other time that I, I really figured that out was when, when I, my first summer at Ananda Village, when I ended up managing the retreat kitchen, not quite single-handedly, but very close to single-handedly, cooking three meals a day for 30 people, six days a week. And on the day that I didn't cook, which was Thursday, because in theory we fasted, in fact, people just came into the kitchen and got what they wanted. But in theory, we all fasted. 
And I would go to town and buy supplies. So it was a seven-day-a-week from before breakfast to after dinner. I loved it. But I was so busy, I just, I was so busy thinking about what I was doing that I really did not have time to ask the question, how do I feel, what do I want, you know, the kinds of questions you ask. And if you don't think about yourself, you'll be happy, which was a principle I had known but never experienced until that. And then I realized that self-realization is self-forgetfulness, that your sense of self is simply forgotten in the realization and the contemplation of something more beautiful and more elegant and more uplifting than yourself. I mean, don't think about yourself and you'll be happy was one of the phrases that I found in the book by Vivekananda that actually put me on the spiritual path. It, I understood intuitively that it was true and I was absolutely bewildered as to what it could possibly mean. I was 19 years old. All I thought about was myself. Not, it, not, not in a selfish way, but in a constant awareness of how I fit into the picture. And I, I wasn't like taking for myself, but I always knew where I was in the story. And I was always calculating my own advantage And my own advantage was often to be generous and selfless because that's what made me happy. But nonetheless, I was always in the equation, always. And the mere idea that I could not be concerned about my own place in the story was fascinating and completely incomprehensible to me. And so a few years later when I was having that experience of karma yoga, in which I loved what I was doing. I mean, cooking for people is is a superb karma yoga experience because it, you just you you spend all this time. You make food, they eat it, it's gone, and then you wash all the dishes and do it again. I mean, it's it's completely the labors of Sisyphus. It's never ending. You just roll the rock halfway up the hill and it rolls down, and you roll it up, and, and everybody loves you for doing it. You know, it's like like you get. It, well, most of the time, sometimes they don't, but most of the time they love you for doing it. <laughs> and you just have to keep doing it. You can't stop. Uh, there, there was a, the title, a woman had five children and she wrote a book. I loved her, the title of her book. I don't, I've never raised children, but I understand it. The title of her book was, Didn't I Just Feed You Yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> Which is, that's it. Like, who cares? <laughs> We're hungry again. And so, um, anyway, the just being, coming back, I started all this with just be natural. It's not like we can push it. We have to stop and receive it. We have to just let go of all that keeps us from knowing what we are in a divine way. And that was like, I'm saying to Swami, I have to improve my powers of analysis. So what that is, is, you know, the, the picture of me from that time, too, is I had long, longish hair. And I wore it in two little braids like this. And I still wore glasses before LASIK surgery. And I had these little dark cat frame glasses like this. And I was, I, I, I was very thin because I was young. I was just small. You know, so everything was kind of intent focus like this and rather tightly wound. And, you know, I was going to just make myself tighter and tighter. And he knew that I would, I would never lose self-awareness if I just kept winding myself up tighter. 
that, the, that, it, that what I had to do was let go of all of that egoic-based approach to reality and just be natural. I mean, I am the foggiest. If he'd said that to me, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't even have had a clue what that meant. You know, you, just like you, you impose your will on the world. That's how you work. You don't allow, you don't ask what's trying to happen. You say, what am I going to do about it? Or how am I going to calculate my position and respond to it? So he's even talking about meditation. Just be natural. And, and what he's also saying in saying that is, meditation is your natural state. Ego is actually uh, the, the twist. I, I, I've thought sometimes of, you know, those, you see those cartoons where they have the diving bell that's shaped like that. I, I must have seen animated cartoons as a child where you have cartoon characters and they go down in the diving bell and, and you know, it's the pressure of the ocean when you get really deep is really intense or even more those incredibly claustrophobic submarine movies where they're way down in there, you know, and it's all real shadowy and a lot of people shout and things happen and invariably the submarine is penetrated and the water is shooting in. And you have this whole sense of how, how much the ocean is trying so hard to break through the shell of the submarine. And I, I've thought of that analogy, the diving bell or the submarine, is that the infinite is constantly trying to break through the shell of our ego and it, just as the submarine has to be so well constructed to keep that water out, we, we construct this extremely subtle, complicated self-definition. And then we spend an enormous amount of our energy keeping it in place so that no greater reality can penetrate. And of course, what, what we're trying to do is become permeable so that it, in, that, that our edges become blurred because the ocean is just simply flowing through us. And, you know, the realization that I won't drown if I do that. The thought, we have this very strong thought that I'll die if I do that. If I, if I actually allow my feelings to express, if I actually stop analyzing things, if I... Uh, I if I... It, it, the fear is the fear is complicated because it's like the more you raise your energy, the more you have to keep raising your energy. And there's a tremendous responsibility that just comes along with the more aware you get, you can't go back to sleep. And so once you once you move into a certain level of awareness, you've closed the door on whatever comfortable. Uh, Tamasic support you've been getting. I, I've seen it happen sometimes when people get married. This one woman, in this sense, that suddenly, they, especially if they've never lived with anyone before, had a close relationship. Nowadays, if you would just say, when some people begin to live together in an intimate way, if they never have done that before. There was this woman I knew, if I was going to use one word to describe her, I would have said moody. It was just like she was so moody. Like today she was up, tomorrow she was down. I mean, she, Moody was really her characteristic. She gets married and she has a lot of trouble with her relationship because she's so moody. And her husband continually points out to her that she's so moody. And, you know, after a year or however, I don't know if the marriage even lasted that long, she sort of said to me, 
I didn't know I was moody. How could you not know you were moody? You're the most moody person I know. But she just never knew because it was her constructed universe and it was just how she coped with life. And it wasn't until this other reality came that it even crossed her mind that that's what, what, was, what was going on. But of course, once she knew, it was very difficult to, to ever shut off knowing that again. So the process on the spiritual path is ever-increasing awareness of reality. And a lot of that is ever-increasing awareness of reality of ourselves. So when Master says, just be natural, he's also telling us that who you are is just fine. Which we think that's what we want to know, but oftentimes we have a very carefully constructed system that is based on a self-definition that does not allow for that kind of just spontaneous. It's based on control. It's based on holding certain self-realities at bay. I mean, suppressing unpleasant memories, hoping to avoid facing traumas, just the sheer comfort of just falling into tamasic energy. Speaking of, uh, you know, sometimes what happens in a, in a marriage dynamic, there was another woman that I knew who, who she married an extremely intense, energetic man who, who just did not have an off switch. He was just always aware and on. A good friend of mine because I'm a lot the same. Okay, so that kind of person. And this woman actually had a slight mental imbalance, actually more than slight, which none of us were aware of, but she kept herself in balance by basically sinking into a very tamasic state whenever the pressure felt too much for her. You know, so she would just become very low energy, very dull, very not interactive, or I don't know exactly what. She didn't drink or take drugs, but who knows what she did. Maybe she watched television or slept a lot. But whatever it was, it was a tamasic habit because it was necessary for her to keep her mental balance. And then she became involved with this man who kept her active all the time. And, and she, she lost her mental balance. There was just no way she could hold it. So our reluctance to be just, just be natural is where, where I'm going with all of this, is because we have solved the problem of consciousness in lots of egoically based ways. And then to actually understand that we can solve the problem of consciousness by completely surrendering those egoic-based ways that we actually have the capacity to raise our energy and then just relax and receive. Even too much willpower, which you, would be hard for you to think of is not appropriate in meditation, can sometimes be just a continuation of that egoic-based self-definition. So that's why Master says, at the beginning, it's better to emphasize relaxation. And now, and this is, let's see, does he actually use the word emphasize? Yeah, he says relaxation. I was actually going to say also, that's why devotion becomes such, so fundamental to meditation practice, even though he's not speaking it here. Because Master's speaking of physical relaxation, which is also, he's also speaking of physical relaxation, but, but not primarily um, Swamiji said something that was just chilling once. I, I, don't, I didn't put it into my book because I've never liked hearing it. He said, uh, people often think they're going through some big karmic purge, but he said most of the time it's just something physical. 
<laughs> you know, just like some physical change in the body that causes a mental change and you think you're just, you know, working out all this karma. It was a casual remark on his part and I think it could be clarified. But he just sort of tossed that out once. I think what he was also saying is people take themselves too seriously. You know, just some little period of indigestion happens and we think that, you know, all of a sudden 14 past lives have now been resolved in this perception, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I think that's, that was the level on which he was speaking. And he, I believe he said it when I was either the only one present or one of the few present. So it might have also been a personal message because I took myself a little too seriously. That is putting it mildly, okay? So, um, but the greatest way to relax is devotion. Because if you think of it just in human terms, when my, when, when my friend, uh, uh, his, his, first, his children were born, uh, two, two sons over a period of two years, two years apart, and he said, I always promised myself I would never be one of those foolish, undignified fathers. Never, 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 he said. I would never, you know, just goo-goo and gaga over my children. He said, but once those children are born, he said, you'll do anything to get a smile out of them. And, you know, he said he was the worst of the worst. <laughs> he completely lost his dignity and completely lost any concern for his dignity. Anything that would get a smile out of his sons, he would just do it without a moment's hesitation. And, of course, what made him self-forgetful was just his sheer love of his children. And he also beautifully said, he said, I was always an unselfish person. He said, but I didn't know what unselfish meant till I had my children. He said, then I discovered that selfless means having no self at all. Period. Zero. You just simply cease to exist. Your children are your reality. But parents don't think of that as a hardship. They think of that as a thrilling privilege because of love. You know, just as simple as that. And self-forgetfulness, lack of self-concern, comes because it's the spontaneous reaction of the heart when filled with love. So what, that's exactly what we're trying to do when we're, we're meditating. And you, you can't make yourself forget yourself. That's just what he's saying there. If you try really hard, I'm going to try to go to sleep now concentrate all my willpower on going to sleep. You, you know, anybody who has any insomnia, which I do, I mean, it's, what actually happens is just at the point of falling asleep, just at the point of swallowing the sleep, my mind latches on to some thought. And it's almost like I can feel it. I feel my mind go like that. And as soon as it clicks like that, it's like, all right, just give it up for now. It's just, it's just not going to go anywhere because it's tightened up. It was relaxing, and now it's grabbed a thought. It's closed its fist around it. It's really annoying. I don't, I don't, I'm not a person who has real insomnia, like real people, like real insomniacs. But I will have trouble falling asleep because just at the point of falling asleep, my subconscious mind usually will throw up something that causes a, enough anxiety that everything goes tense like that. And then once it's tense, it won't go to sleep. But... Uh, when you so, so what we're trying to do when we meditate is we're trying to not be self-concerned. And what is what is apparent? He is the absolute definition of 
who cares? I'll die for my child in a heartbeat. You know, I've heard p- parents tell me this. You know, as soon as the as soon as he hel- he holds the baby, as soon as the mother holds the baby, it's just like take my life if it will save my child. And there's no effort required. It's like, of course, I'll die for this child just like that. So that kind of spontaneous, self-forgetful freedom is what we're trying to have when we meditate. And so then devotion is the shortcut, which is you just, you just can't teach meditation the way we're trying to do it, which is real transcendence without devotion. Now, you don't have to be devoted to Divine Mother. I mean, you can be more... You can do it according to your temperament. I, I, a friend expressed it so beautifully. He said, what I have always loved is truth. And it's just a really pretty way to put it. Because truth itself is such a beautiful ideal. And truth leads you to everything else. Because you ask, who am I? Where does my happiness come from? What is, what is this world I'm living in? And, and that can be such an exquisite ideal. You can love that ideal. Master teaches us to love Divine Mother. That's one of the things he brought to this world, is the love of Divine Mother. Because it's easiest to love it. It's easiest to love the Mother. Because that's what the heart is wanting. The heart wants, wants, to, wants to be understood and wants to be comforted. You know, when, you, when you come way down into it, we're all, we're all seeking a place of, of safety, of acceptance and safety. And our, our huge ego structure is all trying to find a place of acceptance and safety. And just the, the mere image, I, I was fortunate to have very loving parents and I, I, can, I can physically remember, you know, my mother's embrace and my father's strength. I can, I can feel the father-mother relationship, which I was fortunate to experience in a very va- balanced and wholesome way. And I can really feel both sides of it and, and, and remember the capacity of a child to surrender to that. My father was sort of a big man, and I just loved it when he would pick me up because he was just really... And I, I see little girls being carried around by their dad sometime, and it just puts me right back there. And... Of course, I would prefer not to have to do it again as a child, although I expect to. I would prefer not to. But I think but that's, that's, that's a divine relationship. That the reason, the reason I remember it with such fondness is because it reminds me of something eternal. It's not that I'm longing for my physical father and my physical childhood but I remember that safety, you know, that acceptance and that safety and that comfort. And that's our natural state. We don't get that by trying to force it because the very effort to make that happen with our willpower is the exact opposite of the reality of that relationship. All right, let's take a little break and then we'll take questions if there are any and then we'll go on. Okay, let's just take five minutes. I was um, saying during the break, um, I was commenting on your uh, comment from Swami about how uh, sometimes what people experience as karma could be something even simply physical. And uh, when I'd heard that before, the first thought that came to me was it is fairly self-evident 
in relation to where science is pointing us today in terms of how um, the developments in neuroscience and um, the understanding of the human gut it's called the microbiome and how uh, a simple change in in a life in somebody's lifestyle or what the kind of food they eat significantly affects the way they see the world how happy they are how moody they are what kind of uh, sleep cycles they have and things like that are affected by something as simple as consuming more probiotic or uh, yes, eating more processed food now I'm going to just think about that for a minute. Many times, people who eventually end up very serious on the path of self-realization, their self-transformation begins with an awareness of diet. Certainly, at the beginning of... For me, it all all happened at the same time. I I knew about self-realization. I learned about vegetarianism. I started becoming a health food fanatic is the only actual word for it. But definitely, it's like the first thing that you can grasp oftentimes is your diet, and then you you actually experience the relationship between what you consume and who you are. You You realize that you can influence your consciousness by influencing your external actions. People start doing yoga postures and they realize that, or you take up running, any kind of thing like that, that our, our, our emotional and subjective realities of course, they're often dictated by the condition of the body. That's just be the way it is. When I mean, the whole principle of energization exercises is to be able to use your willpower to generate energy because when you have energy, many more things are possible. Or when you feel you, you have access to energy, many more things are possible. Oftentimes, um, if, if, you don't, if you don't believe or you don't have a flow of energy. Um, everything is impossible. And, and it was, I was trying to phrase that differently. Oftentimes when we feel weak, scared, incapable, it's really that we don't feel we have the energy to face something. And if you know you have the energy to face something, whether it's emotional or physical or whatever it might be, you're much less afraid of it. And, and there, there, then you get that relationship between having mastery over your physical, over your energy mental and physical becomes mastery over your life so anything that would affect that would affect your perception of reality now Swami's statement about I mean just to to be clear about the way you put it because people will say to me do you think this thing that happened to me was actually karmic that's a phrase people will use well are you breathing yeah I mean are you living do you exist you have consciousness everything is karma it's not like these things are karma and these things are not which is just a a confused vocabulary that once these words become common, they become less well understood. But what Swami was implying is that people will think that that the cause of their experience is cosmic when it is really just some shift in the hormone structure or the something like this. And the, you know, the real question is uh, hormone balance, enough protein, subtle indigestion, the, the consciousness of the food that you're eating and all of those things. And yeah, the scientific world is beginning to understand the material world on subtler and subtler levels and then beginning to get the relationships back in a circle. But interestingly, just as a small by the way, um, Th- this was a conversation just as it happens. There was a well-known spiritual teacher named Sankashavdas 
who died maybe 20 years ago, but he was a friend of Swami Kriyananda's and would visit sometimes, and the two of them would have interesting conversations. So I'm, that's just the source of this. But they were talking about, because every so often in every ashram, especially through the 70s and 80s, and even still now, these weird diets would go through. You know, everybody would be eating off the left side of their plates and only things that were, you know, that were green or yellow or white. or it, uh, In fact, there was a spoof that went around that was the Kabunza diet. And the Kabunza diet, at that time, all the, all the diets came from some little-known tribe in some Amazon valley and and that had lived isolated from civilization for hundreds of years and people lived to be 120 and looked only 35 years old and so so there was this whole spoof that this came I don't the papers the little pamphlet is long since lost but it was the Kabunza diet and the Kabunza people were in the Kabunza valley of course and they were you know vital until and they and they they played volleyball past their hundreds you know and there were <laughs> all these stories about how what good volleyball players they were even though they were 100 years old and on and on and the, the kabunza diet was very simple it was just this sort of dark substance that's all they ate so in this little analysis some you know some archaeologists managed to get some of the kabunza and bring it back and then bring it into a scientific laboratory where it was analyzed and discovered that it was bio-identical to Hershey with almonds. <laughs> so then the whole cookbook was the Kabunza diet, which was all based on Hershey's with Hershey bars with almonds. And you had all these, and then it just went into all the spoofs that you in. You had, you had double Kabunza which was two bars together that you bit it together. And then you had Kabunza Surprise, which was a Hershey bar on the bottom, a Hershey bar on the top, and a Hershey bar in the middle, you know, like that. <laughs> it just, it went through the whole thing. And it had been written by some, I think some transcendental meditation TM person after he'd been to the latest convention and it just heard everything and it just had it. So the Kabunza diet for many years became sort of our our watchword. Now, what was the whole point of that? Oh, yes. So, Sant Keshav Das and Swamiji were comparing notes. You know, like the leaders of two ashrams, you, when they're alone together or nearly alone together, they say things to each other that they don't say to the people in the ashram. But they were just both talking about this inclination to seize these diets as the final answer. You know, veganism or whatever it is. And I believe me, I went through so many of them myself that I I, I, I know whereof I speak. Either I practice them or I watch them. And uh, what, what, they, what they said was a really simple thing. They said in a very high age where the veil between the material and the spiritual world is already very thin. You know, and if you think about uh, Treta Yuga where people are able to communicate by the power of thought, or Satya Yuga, where there's, you're just in harmony with a greater reality. And in his book, The Time Tunnel, which is a, a fiction book for, for young adults, or it's, it's, it's sort of one of those children's books, it's also for adults, that Swami wrote <clears throat> toward the end of his life. And the great fun he discovered of writing fiction is you don't have to support any of your intuitions with reason. You can just declare them. Um, good fiction reflects reality. You don't just make up a whole, it's irresponsible, Swami feels, to just make up 
a false reality, a false universe. You ought to, you need to reflect divine law, but you don't have to support your intuition with anything. And, and in the time tunnel, these children discover this laboratory and they discover this tunnel and obviously it takes them backward and forward in time. So when they go forward in time to a very high age, one of the characteristics of it, just a small thing, is that you don't have to have any window screens because every, every aspect of creation remains harmoniously within its own sphere. So insects and human beings coexist nicely because insects don't invade and don't trouble the human sphere. It was just a very uh, small point to just demonstrate a level of harmonious connection to a greater reality that we don't have because the, the separation is too strong right now. So they were saying, Santji and uh, Swamiji were saying to each other that uh, in a very high age, you can do just a little bit of physical purification and it'll be enough to, to really shift you over. In the age that we live in now, which is a very early Dwapara, he said you can't advance very far with physical purification because the physical world is simply too dense. And so no matter how arduously you do that, the barrier is just too great. It's not the means. And then they were saying, in this age, devotion. In this age, devotion is the avenue because devotion will cut through it in, in the present age that we're living, meaning this early Dwapara age. Did they mean through the whole yuga? I don't, they didn't articulate it like that. They were making a contrast between and between. At the same time, what we are saying here is that you can, you can really affect your consciousness by taking care of your body. Everybody knows that. If you're sick, you feel very differently than you do I used to joke that I, I don't have this anymore, but I, I used to crash and burn more often than I do now. And I used to, every so often I would declare that I, w- I, I was infected with the punies, is what I would call it, <laughs> meaning I had just lost my capacity to cope. And I would just stay home for a couple of days and read novels because I had the punies. I was too puny to deal with the world. And I would just live through it and then I would pull myself out again by making it sort of a joke it helped but my mind would just crash and I just couldn't do it anymore and why would it crash maybe it would crash because I was undernourished dehydrated all of these things you see it all the time it's very it's very worth paying attention to yes so I guess uh, devotion is one of the central words that has come uh, in today's class for me, I mean, where I am receiving it. So, uh, although this is easily, uh, I mean, this is easy to say that we know, I mean, I know what is devotion, but I uh, would still like to know from you that if you have to uh, tell us a little bit more about what devotion is and what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And although I think it varies from person to person and what is devotion for me and from uh, for you could be different, but I think it would be helpful to understand. It's a very, uh, very good understand. question. I'm glad you asked it. I had to give a class once on devotion like sp- at Spiritual Renewal Week at Ananda. It was some big Ananda class of some sort. And the inspiration that came to me at, at the time, I had never seriously thought about it before, but ever since then it's been meaningful to me. Um, 
the, the, the root word of devotion is to be devoted to. So, I mean, the, re, the root concept, that's where devotion comes from. We tend to think devotion means chanting, devotion means um, praying, devotion means many things, but the real beginning word is to be devoted to something. That's how you have devotion, I'm devoted to it. And... Um, Oftentimes people define devotion in a way that looks like it's, it's an excess of feeling or emotion, which is not attractive to everyone or, or, or may not be at all natural to some people. Many people are quite reserved in, in their nature. And they, the idea of, of sort of wearing your heart on your sleeve and, you know, going into these kirtans or... Uh, having this ex- these excessive poetic words, it just it's just not in them, and so they may have the feeling that they're not devotional. But if you if you start with the concept of being de- deeply devoted, then then you can build devotion from wherever you stand according to your own temperament. This is where the idea of some people are deeply devoted to truth. The truth is a, a really high value. For me personally, I've expanded my realities in many directions since I started. But when I look back through my childhood, um, my salient characteristic, I believe, was my devotion to truth. And I was extremely devoted to truth to the extent that my relationship with my mother was, was, was uh, limited, was defined defined would be the right word, by the fact that if her feelings were involved, she was not intellectually honest. She was subject to master's shortcoming, which is that reason follows feeling. And if her feelings became involved in something, and she was very intelligent, she would be able to reason it out so that it was true. And I was very sharp from a very young age, and I could always tell when she was doing that. And therefore, I could never really trust her because I knew that if she had become prejudiced emotionally in some way, I remember my parents were very um, traditional in, in many ways that they parented us. And one of the things that they rarely did was they didn't really involve us in their personal emotional life that much. And to a certain extent, it would have been nice to have been invited in a little more but one of the rare times I remember was we would go with my father to some kind of business convention sometimes because it was we could all it was a way to get a family vacation and he would go to a few meetings and and there was something happened at some evening adult program in which my mother apparently became offended by someone and had an argument with some somebody else's wife some other some colleague of my father's wife and for some reason I knew about it, which was very unusual for me at the age of eight or nine to know something like that. And I remember asking my father the next day, is mommy still mad at so-and-so? And now he said, well, you know, a hard-boiled egg eventually cools off, but it remains hard-boiled, is how he put it, which has always stayed in my mind. But that was a little bit my mother. If she once got hard-boiled on an issue, she would just justify that for the rest of the time. And my devotion to truth made it very difficult. I had to always be really careful. She was very helpful to me many times. It was not like she was always wrong. 
but I always held myself back just a little bit because if she was prejudiced, I was going to be a little bit in trouble. So we start by being devoted to whatever we can understand, but what we learn from that is we understand what it means to have a a value at the center of our reality that is more important than our opinions. And And therefore, it becomes the means for us being able to transcend our ego limitations because it's a value that transcends our ego limitations. So even though, of course, I'm not perfect in it, I mean, truth is very important to me. And if, if I understand that I'm wrong, I'm, I'm very happy to be wrong because my devotion to truth is greater than my need to be right. My mother was a little bit uh, flawed in that respect. And it, it was a limitation in her, which I actually think by the end of her life she um, transcended. But at the beginning, that was very much like it. So you, you start with that, and then you become devoted as you can understand. You, be, you can become devoted to the guru. You can become devoted to your children. We, we am devoted to your children. You can become devoted to the guru. You can become conscious of a loving presence that begins to take care of you and a, a sense of enormous gratitude begins to arise in your heart. Gratitude is a a magnificent expression of devotion. A a man was speaking to me about the fact that he just, he didn't understand the word love. He didn't know how to love God or love Master. It was an odd, it was was really a mental problem more really than a heart, but it, it stumbled. But I said, but you're, you're very grateful for this path, aren't you? And he said, every day. I said, well, love and gratitude. I mean, gratitude is a, a very refined expression of devotion, of love. Because that's what gratitude is. Gratitude is a very active thank you. And that's a very strong form of love. So all of these ideas are what it means to develop devotion. And then when we get more accustomed to having a force that's bigger than our own mind that doesn't just come out of rational thinking but comes out of actual experience of something that, that moves us uh, that, that isn't subject to our control. Um, then all the other expressions of devotion that we, th- that we traditionally think of as the traditional practices all just start following because once you're grateful, you want to express your gratitude and you want to communicate in ways that will be understood. You want to enjoy the relationship. Just like my friend with his little boys, you know, he just didn't care anymore about what being a dignified adult. He just wanted to enjoy the relationship with his children. And so he became childlike in his enthusiasm for his children. And so when we begin to be to feel gratitude for the power of God and Guru in our lives, and we begin to express that gratitude, we become freer and freer in our expression of gratitude. Whether anybody ever knows about it is really quite incidental to whether or not we're actually feeling it. But oftentimes, it becomes, we become completely free in our willingness to let other people see because we don't care anymore. So all of those things... Does that help? Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. And thank mm-hmm. you also for bringing up uh, the love into this, because just as my mind was 
thinking about that where is the place of love in this then you spoke about it so yeah, yeah. thank you for that love is a, an abstract concept we have to think about what it really means I mean so everybody's attuned differently some people are just born someone asked me once of the eight manifestations of God which are your favorites <laughs> which I thought was an interesting question and I, I thought about it for a moment and I said wisdom and joy and that that's really true it's not I mean I'm all for love and peace, you know. It's not like I don't want it. <laughs> but my, my inclination is to truth. When I say wisdom, it's like, it's just, truth is, the, is a, it's just really, I always want to know what's true. Just to really understand what's true. And I like, and joy, joy comes to me first. So it's, it's an interesting question to ask yourself, too. Like, how am I inclined? Because it's all an equal story. So some people, and then when I was talking to someone about that, the woman said to me, oh, for me, it's always been love. And, and for her, it always has been love, you know, which she's, which she's quested in a human way and gradually quested in a divine way. And, you know, I, like everyone, of course I like to be loved and I've wanted to love and I, you know, wanted to fall in love and I wanted to love children. I mean, naturally. But nonetheless... Um, it didn't, it didn't rule my life, whereas in her life, it's always ruled her life. The quest for joy and wisdom has always ruled my life. And then there's been a, a lot of love on the side, and I've been really grateful for it. <laughs> yes? This makes, a whole, it takes it to a whole different level, what uh-huh. you just said. Oh, good. Am I holding this right? Yes, you're fine. Um, but you, just before we started into this, you said something about Master said in this yuga of in- energy that devotion was a key what did okay actually i wasn't quoting master i was quoting the conversation between swamiji and sankashavdas okay but it was swamiji who said it, and of course mm-hmm. everything swami said was master's teaching in in this in this in at this point in the yuga cycle and this was entirely about fasting and strict diets and physical purification which is a lot of times in ashrams people i mean when i myself when i moved to ananda in 1971 just before i turned 24 it had been probably close to three years since i'd had any sugar so i figured i was a hair's breadth away from cosmic consciousness (laughs) i mean like it was just like no sugar god realization it was just like a real close relationship in my mind and some of you remember, sometime in that very first summer, I went, uh, we, we lived, we didn't have Master's Market at the Ananda Village. We lived 20 miles from town. We were completely isolated and we had nothing out there. There was no access to anything. So one of the things we would do when we'd go to town, we, meaning Swami and all of us, we'd go to Swenson's Ice Cream Parlor because it was a real treat that we just rarely had. And I was in charge of the kitchen, and believe me, there was no ice cream in that kitchen, I promise you. <laughs> Not, at least during those years. And, uh, but that summer, really early, we went to Swenson's Ice Cream Parlor. There must have been two carloads of us, because I remember in my mind, it was a long table. So there were people lined up on both sides. For some reason, I sat at the one end of the table, like the foot of the table. Swami sat at the head of the table. It just happened like that, or God put it like that. I'm absolutely, I've still got my braids and my little glasses and my little tight little form here. And 
Swamiji is being, I, I feel, again, these are these things like in memory, it was so exaggerated. Everybody's looking at the menu and talking about the banana splits and the, how many toppings we're going to get and how much ice cream and how many different flavors. And Swami is right in the middle of it. And then everybody orders these ice cream things. And I have this picture of everybody reaching across with their spoons, trying everyone else. I ordered a glass of water, no ice, please. And I sat there with a glass of water, no ice, while everyone else is eating ice cream sundaes like this. And I'm, you know, I, I used to call myself, uh, we were Brahmacharinis then, I used to call myself Raisinarini. <laughs> My friend was Prunamata and I was Raisinarini is what we call ourselves. <laughs> we just, little shriveled. And I sat there, this little shriveled, self-righteous person drinking uh, room temperature water well, Swami Kriyananda and everybody else was enjoying ice cream sundaes because, you know, no sugar was God realization. And, and fortunately, and for this I am always grateful, it crossed my mind that perhaps I was the one who was wrong. I mean, it would have been very easy for me to have left Ananda over that. But instead, I thought, I think I'm the one who's wrong here. But I was really in that thought because, whoa, Controlling my palate was a whole lot easier than controlling my mind. And so it was just like, I'm going to follow my natural inclinations. And into this day, I'm still terrible at fasting. But, you know, if I have to do some dietary thing, it's just not, it's something I know how to do more easily than some people can do. But controlling my mind is still a big issue. So Sant Kishavdas and Swamiji were talking about the fact that everybody wants to control their, ba- their bodies because it's a lot easier than controlling your heart and your mind. And they were saying, it's not an invalid practice, because there are lots of yogic practices, but they're for a much higher age, where, the, where you know, the physical body is, an, uh, uh, the, just this little bit of physicality, if I can just erase that, then I can be freed. So you, you do a little bit of physical tapasya, and then you really are liberated from it. But in this age, you can do a huge amount of physical tapasya, but the wall between matter and spirit is just too thick to penetrate with that tool. It's not a sharp enough tool. And that was when they said devotion is the tool, because devotion will cut through everything. Because it's the age of energy that it depends on your devotion. Well, you start with a mother and her child yeah. and all this, that we take it to the next level as much as we can. We take it to the next level as much as but we can. But the ultimate would be, I was thinking of the Bhagavad Gita. I mean, there's Arjuna and his and God. Right. And um, But God isn't going to fight for him. Yes, <laughs> But his devotion for God is going to take him. And his love for Krishna allowed him, I mean, when you go through the whole Mahabharata, not just through the Gita, but the whole Mahabharata uh, Arjuna was so devoted to Krishna, he did what Krishna asked him to do. Even when Krishna asked him to do something that Arjuna thought was not dharma, he still did it because he was more devoted he was more devoted to following Krishna than he was devoted to his own ideas. I mean, that's another when you think about devoted to. What am I devoted to? What am I trying to protect? You know, why am I why am I fighting? Why am I fighting to keep my limitations? What am I devoted to? Am I really devoted to spiritual freedom? 
or am I, I, I was talking, you know, it gets very subtle. I was talking to someone the other day and saying, um, the difficulty is that once you reach a certain point of evolution, spiritually speaking, you become refined, you become generous by nature, you become positive, you generally have a light consciousness, and you can look pretty spiritual just by doing what's natural to you. <laughs> but you're not really, um, you're not really, advancing. And that's part of the reason why community is so helpful. Because if you're the only one who, who's, who's at all spiritually attuned, you can look really, really big and beautiful over here because everybody else is so short. But when you are, operate in a community of peers, and uh, especially a, a community like Ananda, where it's really a community of saints, and you begin to really see what's possible then you realize it's not enough for me just to follow my natural impulses. How did, how did Master put it? It's not enough to be good merely because it's your habit to be good. You have to be acting in complete transcendence of the principle of self. And it's, you know, it, it's, all, this, you know it's, all, it's all marvelous. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I still I wouldn't let go of that devotion okay. in the age of energy. So your energy then is um, intimately de- connected to your devotion. Well, I mean, devotion it, has to devotion that is that is limp is not going to have much effect. Oh yes, I just love God. Everything that God does for me is just so beautiful. You know, let's now, you know, let's turn on the television and watch this. It won't get you anywhere. You, your, your, the power of your devotion has to match your delusions or else it won't overcome your delusions. If the power of your delusions has more energy than the power of your devotion, your delusions will win every time. And that, that's sort of what I was saying. It's not enough to be good just because it's your habit to be good. You have to get to the edge of what you're able to do naturally, and then you have to exert energy to overcome. This is where Sister Gyanamata said, uh, even, you know, she said, I came to realize that I had to, I had to give up everything, even those things, and I don't know whether she was the word attachment or what, but those, you know, those things that harmed no one and were mine by right. That was the phrase. She said even those had to be surrendered because that was, that was her, her, her point of overcoming. And it wasn't an objective reality, but to her, her self-definition, her security, and her comfort was still holding on to them. And that made them wrong. And that's also, it's like, they're not wrong for someone else, but they're wrong for you because... For you, that's binding. For someone else, they might rise to that. But for you, it's binding. And wherever that edge is, that's where the battle begins. That's where energy is. Energy, the energy of devotion has to be greater than the energy of delusion, or delusion remains. So, all right. That was fun. We did number 325. And the last class of the year is next week. Uh, because I, I'm going. To, some people thought I was quitting on Thanksgiving weekend because I often this is the last Tuesday of the month, but not this year. 
So I do one more in November and then we're done for the year. <laughs>